I think only about two-thirds of the people who get clearance for assisted dying in, in the Netherlands, somebody did a study, mm. and they acquire, they can acquire the drugs and they have them at home. And only about, a, only about half of them, just over half of them, ever take them. Mm. But they know they're there. Yeah. Mm. And I think knowing that you have an option, knowing that you're going to have control, makes it more possible for you to bear what you're going through. Welcome to Unquestionable with your hosts, Giles Perry Phillips and Sophie Green, where each week we dive into real and raw conversations with experts, creators, thought leaders and CEOs. With our guests, we'll be exploring some of the unquestionable truths behind psychology, mental health and relationships to gain a deeper understanding of human nature. So let's get into today's episode. Professor Sarah Tarlow. I must, must get your full name in. You can call me Sarah. Yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah if you could start off by just telling our listeners a bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, uh, my name's... Sarah Tarlow and I'm Professor of Historical Archaeology at the University of Leicester and what I've always worked on in my academic life is the archaeology of death and burial and, and I've been really interested in how people through time have structured that relationship between the living and the dead. How do people relate to their own dead and to their the ancestors of their people and so on. So that's something I've always been interested in studying and particularly whether there are ways in which we as archaeologists can get at the experience of being a person in the past. Uh, things like the, the emotional experience, which obviously death is a really emotional experience. So that's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, but in a way, it was all quite abstract for me until 2016, when uh, my husband, Mark, died. Uh, and that was so that was a very personal experience of bereavement. And um, as a consequence of that, uh, a few years later, I, I wrote a memoir called The Archaeology of Loss, which explores um, both my own experience of caring and Mark's death talks about that period. And also I wanted to talk uh, to interweave that with some of my professional experience as an archaeologist specialising in that area. It's fascinating. Well, and obviously, we want to talk about that and your book. Going back a little bit, what first made you want to study or explore that particular area of archaeology? Yeah, I, well, I came into it through theory, actually. I was interested in archaeological theory. Most people come in because they like digging. Digging, yeah. yeah. Digging <laughs> and, and I do like and, digging, and, brushing. and it's fun. <laughs> and you, you get to go and camp in the countryside yeah. with your friends, and that's that's a lot of fun. And, and uh that, that's all good stuff. But actually, when I found out that archaeology also is about thinking and it's about the, kind, the intellectual challenge of taking inadequate data, you haven't got nearly enough evidence, mm. you've just got little bits and pieces and scraps that don't really fit together very well. How can you take all of those scraps and then knit them together into something that tells us about people in the past. And I just loved that challenge. And so I started thinking as a graduate student about whether we could use theories of metaphor that have been developed for talking about uh, language. Can we use those to talk about material culture, about the way that people deploy things? And I thought one interesting place to look for that is death, because we always talk about death in, met in metaphorical ways. We talk about people falling asleep or um, going on a journey or ascending to heaven. And these aren't literally true. They're the metaphors that we mm. use, but they're not just the language. They also affect the way that we 
that we um, bury people, for example, so that, if you, well, to use a, a well-known example, if you think of Norse ship burials, mm. they are they're take, making a material form out of this metaphor of going on a journey to Valhalla in a, in a ship. Or in more recent times, the metaphor that probably dominates our thinking is falling asleep. And you can see in the early modern period that people start burying their dead in night clothes and putting a little pillow under their head. And that all looks very natural to us, but it, there's no reason why we should do that, except that we're making material, a metaphor that's already in our heads. So that was my interest. That's where I came in. And I just thought this is such an interesting area. Of course, as well as archaeologists, most of our data, a ton of our data comes from the grave. That's where that's a big source of our information. So I didn't want to talk about that as though that was just incidental. Mm. I wanted to put death in the in the foreground and think about how people have related to the dead. Mm, yeah, I suppose a lot of archaeology in some ways is it is storytelling and kind of through inference and deduction, kind of working out what the truths were of that time when we don't really have much information. And I suppose in that sense, you, you mentioned earlier that death is a very emotional thing. And so would you say that there was a difference between the way that we kind of perceive the emotional side of death today compared to maybe going back 100, 200, 300 years? And would we have felt or would they have felt emotion in the same way around death? Would it have been a celebration rather than something to mourn and grieve? Or like, how, do, how do we even go about understanding that if there's hardly any evidence? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And it's super challenging. It's really hard. But I thought... No, we, we need to start from the from the point of view that we don't know what people in the past experienced. We can't assume that they were just like us. Mm. I think we probably can assume that death was always an emotional experience, but whether that that emotion was sadness or anger or fear mm. or joy or a combination of all of those things, we can't know for sure. So mm. those, that's something where we have to keep an open mind, really, in, in trying to investigate the past. Mm. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Archaeology is storytelling. And we never know we're right. We never know we've got the right story. We never know that we've reached the final conclusive facts about the past. Mm. What we do is we take the scraps that we've got and we put them into something that's plausible, that makes a nice, interesting picture that gives us something of the texture of people's lives in the past. Mm. I like that about archaeology, though. I like that you can admit that you're not 100% certain. And like the sciences, for example, once you have a discovery or you hypothesize and then you prove it to be correct or incorrect, it's very solid. Um, and we've spoken to guests in the past about this sort of thing, the difference between being open-minded about maybe this isn't how it was, maybe this is how it was. Um, and yeah, being a bit more sort of stuck in your beliefs, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I like I like that you're open to being wrong yeah, <laughs> about so. things. It's always only ever provisional uh, and yeah. it's only ever plausible. It, I mean, it could be disproved, but it's not... It's not even a case of proving or disproving most of the time. It's that I've come up with one story about the past and you might come up with another story and we might both be right because the past is really complicated and people are really complicated and people are quite different. So my experience won't necessarily be the same as your experience or Giles's experience. So mm, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I suppose there's a difference between the individual and society as a whole. Um, and we 
spoke to a, uh, an author a few a few months ago actually on the pod um great author and actor called patterson joseph and he had been doing research on a historical figure but had kind of made like a non-fiction book out of his life and he was saying that in compiling that information it was less about finding out information about him as a person but more about society at the time and then having to kind of make presumptions based on that specific person based in that time does that make sense yeah it does and that's what I've ended up trying doing really with my archaeology of emotion the work on that to think actually I don't even understand my friends and close family (laughs) (laughs) I don't even understand myself half the time so to get it to kind of get at those deep psychological truths at an individual level seems quite difficult but I can look at a society as a whole and I can look at our society and say well there are certain emotions that we really value. Um, romantic love would be one of those because it's everywhere. It's everywhere in our culture. And that's not, all, that's not universally the case in all cultures and at all times. But I think you can say that that is a, an emotion that kind of characterises the way that we live at a particular time, even if it doesn't characterise every single individual mm. uh, in our society. Yeah. So what kinds of cultures have you kind of explored um, around, you know, in the, in the years that you've covered with your archaeology? What, uh, I mean, it'd be interested to hear some, maybe some anecdotal kind of things about practices and stuff of, around, uh, around death and, and burial and grieving. Yeah, well, I've, I'm quite interested in more recent periods. So I've mostly looked at the post-medieval period, the last 500 years or so, mostly in Britain and Ireland. And I've looked at the way that our modern patterns of emotion and of of, uh, bereavement and grieving have developed. So, um, for example, I could look at something like the way that we tend to bury people, how we bury people. Uh, In the medieval period, for example, people tended to get buried um, temporarily. They would go into the into a single grave in the graveyard, and then and they most people wouldn't have any kind of monument or any kind mm. of permanent marker at all. And after maybe ten fifteen years, the space would be needed again, so their bones get cleared to the side, and somebody else goes in. That incidentally, if you go to rural churchyards, you'll often notice there may be a meter or so higher than the surrounding ground. Oh, what interesting. That okay, meter or so of extra elevation is is people it's <laughs> it's maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred years worth of buried people which have worked to actually raise the ground level in old churchyards wow. so that's a, a thing you can look at yeah. however from the end of the 18th century people stop wanting that and they get very anxious about uh, how they they want to be in the ground in perpetuity they often also want to get buried with their families or with their spouse which is not something you see before that. Mm. So it becomes a much more emotional thing. Um, And the decay of the body is something that people get very anxious about from the end of the 18th century, and they try and pretty it over so that memorial monuments stop having decaying skulls and things on them, and they start having flowers and angels and pretty things. And we, we develop this new metaphor of going to sleep that you see in people's practices and also the language they use. So that's the sort of thing that I've been uh, studying over the last 30 years. Mm. So would it be safe to say that over the course of the last sort of 500 years, we've become maybe a little bit more precious about death and see it as 
potentially more of a taboo subject. You know, it seems to be that we're kind of trying to pretty it and make it less about what it actually is. Uh, is that, I don't know if it's a religious thing or if it's more that we as society sort of find it harder to cope with death and the idea about death. What would your predictions be about yeah, that? Yeah, I think there's, well, there's a lot of things going on. I mean, this is the period of um, the Protestant Reformation. So there was a change then because if you were in late Catholic times in the pre-Reformation period and somebody close to you died, you would go to go to church and you'd say lots of masses for them. You could even pay somebody else to say lots of masses and prayers for them. And that would all affect what was going on for them in the afterlife. So they would spend less time in purgatory because the, you're asking the saints to intercede on, on their behalf. Now, Protestants didn't believe in that. They said, oh, no, once you die, you're on your own before God. So that meant that the bereaved didn't, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything to help the person who's gone. All they could do was remember them. And I think at the same time, you have the kind of rise of this kind of these romantic, highly emotional, interpersonal relationships that are very centred in the body and they're very centred in the individual body. And it's about, you know, I love you because you are unique and special. And when that unique, special individual person dies and their their body dies, that's a real problem then for me. So you need to find some way of kind of um, mediating that relationship then, the, the relationship between the living and the dead, which the, uh, I don't know if you've come across this idea of continuing bonds, but people who work in, in uh, death studies and bereavement care and so on these days talk a lot about continuing bonds and they make the point that when somebody dies, that's not necessarily the end of the relationship. Mm. The relationship continues in all sorts of ways and you might mediate it through photographs and objects, through your own rituals, uh, through remembering people in formal and informal ways. But the relationship goes on. So I think that's, that's interesting because I, I read a thing about, um, for example, social media pages. So like Facebook pages, people will keep them open as memorials to those people. They might even continue posting as that person or, or not as them, but, you know, I mean, through through their pages is a way of continuing their life in some way, um, which is really interesting that we've taken it into a digital age now. Yeah. No, it's, it is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, really fascinating. Um, tell us a bit about your book and how you came to write it um, and a bit about um, your husband, Mark, and the condition that he had and, you know, how, how the book came about and wanting to write a memoir. Okay, so Mark was also an archaeologist um, and... Yeah, we, we got together. In fact, we were both interviewed for the same job. <laughs> that, really? That oh, we, right. met, we met on the train on the way to the to the interview. Uh, and then we shared a taxi from this from the station. And I realised as soon as I started talking to him that I didn't stand a chance. <laughs> and, <laughs> and indeed, he got the job. But then another job came up at the same place a few years later. It was the University of Wales Lampeter. And then we ended up being colleagues. And then a couple of years after that, we, we got together. Um and we had children, we were living together. Uh, but then in about 2011, 2012, he started to experience minor seizures and we didn't know what they were. He had so many scans and so many tests uh, and they could see that there was an inflammation in his brain and the inflammation over the next few years just spread and spread and spread. No real cause was ever 
discovered for what what was going on there. But in the end, it went uh, right through his brain and down into his spinal cord. And by the end of his life, he was bedridden. He was doubly incontinent. He couldn't smell or taste. He couldn't always see very well. He was in constant discomfort. It was really a horrible um, condition of, of life that he had at the end. Um, and in the end, what he did was wait until I was out of the house with the children. And then he took some drugs that he'd acquired online and ended his own life. And he didn't tell me he was going to do that because he wanted to keep me safe from prosecution. Mm. So he did this, I think, enormously courageous, loving thing. Um, and and he died. Um, and I, to begin with, right after his death, I couldn't have written this book. I was mm. just too tired apart from anything else. I was absolutely exhausted from several years of caring for him. But after a few years, I thought I wanted to write a book and I wanted to write it for, well, three reasons, really. First of all, because I was angry about the way that Mark died. I was angry that he had to die alone and I wanted, I would have wanted, he would have wanted for me to be there with him at that most difficult time. Uh, not only did he have to die alone, he couldn't tell anybody about what he was thinking. He couldn't get sort of psychological support or anything like that for making that decision. So he was really isolated because of our laws. And I think that's wrong. Mm. And so I felt that that was something I was angry about and I wanted to write about. Secondly, um, when I was caring for Mark for several years, that was, that was a really hard time. I was working full time, taking care of three kids and a house and Mark who was getting sicker and sicker and being able to do less and less. Um, and I, like all, I'm a sort of, I'm a book nerd and uh, I, I think I'm among friends here. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're in good what, company. <laughs> what, what we do when we're experiencing something is turn to literature. And mm. I went and looked for echoes of my experience in literature. And I, I was looking through other people's memoirs to see if they were talking about their caring experience. Mm. And the only people I've, the only experiences I found, they were all very, um, very romantic and mm. it was very angelic and people were so patient and the only mm. thing they cared about was love for their sick person that they were caring for and I was thinking am I the only person <laughs> who's feeling really grumpy yeah. and tired and self-pitying and all these other kind of quite unattractive mm. emotions so I wanted to write an honest memoir that reflected what I found the reality of of caring to be, which was horribly stressful and it didn't bring out the best in either in either of us. Uh, so that was another thing. And then the third thing was I wanted to see if I could write something that was a piece mm. of literature because I've written a ton of books, but they've all been academic ones. Um, and, and it was brilliant, I must say, absolutely so liberating to to be able to write a book without any footnotes, yeah. without oh. having to put in graphs and yeah, tables yeah, yeah. to substantiate every point yeah. you, you make, just to write in the style that you want to. Mm. So, yeah, so those were the reasons why I wrote the book. Mm. And it would be an obvious question to say, was it a cathartic experience? But sometimes writing about these very personal things aren't cathartic. Mm. Um, they can be very challenging. Did you find it a challenging write? I didn't find it challenging. I didn't find it... I didn't think I was finding it cathartic either. I thought I wasn't writing it for therapy. I wasn't writing it because I thought 
better out than in or, yeah, or anything yeah. like that. I was writing it for those other reasons. But then I think having written it, I look back over what I'd written and I think finding the narrative, finding the story, it's like it's the same process as archaeology. You get all these scraps and pieces and inadequate memories and you cobble them together mm. into a story. And that's what I'd done. And having done that, I was able to look at the character of me with a bit more compassion mm. and a bit more forgiveness. Because I think at, at the time and when I was writing it, I was still... Um, very angry with myself I was still very aware of all the respects in which I'd fallen short and I think the process of writing the story and finding the narrative enabled me to see the to see the picture a little bit more kindly than I than I did at the time so I think inadvertently it was therapeutic yeah and I would say in the book you are quite self-deprecating and hard on yourself and I guess like you say this has kind of been a self-care moment actually writing the book yeah, I think maybe inadvertently yeah. it was, yes. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think in the moments of grief after death as well, quite a lot of people are guilty of romanticising and looking at memories of rose-tinted glasses. And I know there's a bit in the book that you talk about um, Mark's hair clippers and how mm. that could be seen as, you know, this beautiful moment where you would cut his hair for him. But actually the truth was a lot more sort of, you know, you were a bit annoyed at him because he hadn't considered your feelings when he'd bought them and presumed you were going to cut his hair for him and you were kind of doing it, you know, dragging your heels and stuff. I think I think we can all relate to that. I mean, I... I think it's an excellent book and it is quite emotional at times. I got quite emotional reading it and I haven't experienced what you've experienced. We will have our own experiences of grief and loss in different ways. But I think a lot of people can relate to that and can relate to sort of the idea of looking back on these memories and and romanticising and then thinking, well, actually, I wasn't very patient or... You know, that's that's universal, I think. That's right. And I think, again, it's about finding the narrative. It's about finding the story. And particularly after a death like Mark's, which was where following a, a very long, drawn-out period of illness, which was really hard on the whole family, it's easy after that kind of death just to remember the last the end of his life, the remem- to remember the last few years. So actually going back and remembering this, this sexy, mm. cool intellectual man that I was first drawn to and think actually yeah that was that was Mark too that was also Mm. part of the story and that was an important thing for me Mm. to do yeah I have to say the story of how you two met when I was reading it I was thinking this could actually be a film I can imagine this being uh like have you seen um oh what's that film called with Rachel McAdams the is it about time. About time, where they go back, or well, he pauses and can go back in time and stuff like that. It's a sort of like romantic, English, quirky film. And I could imagine, like, just the way you met and, like, the coincidences and the serendipity of it all. It's very romantic. And I was reading it thinking, yeah, this could be a f- I would watch this if this was a film. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's nice to, nice to hear that that's how it, it kind of made you feel as well, reminded you of those good times. Yeah, yeah, it did. Mm. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I I was thinking just then when you were saying um, about piecing together that person from your memories and thinking about I, I lost my mum at six, so I didn't have much of a relationship with her because obviously I was very young. Um, but a lot of the narrative around her when I was talking to family stuff was about her illness because she had terminal cancer. And a lot of it was around that as opposed to 
I don't know, the music she liked or the things she liked going out to do or having meals and things like that. And it's trying to find those things later in life is a lot harder because, you know, when your narrative is based around the the care and the and that individual being, you know, unwell. Yeah, I think that's particularly the case for a, ch- for a child because, mm. yeah, you, your memory, you don't really have memories of your parents as individuals and as individual no. characters till you're a bit older usually anyway. So I know my youngest son has has been really interested to try to find out more about what his dad was like other than just, you know, a man that was ill and then died. And he's always really interested to talk to Mark's friends about what Mark was like when he was younger and get a sense of him as as an individual. Yeah, that's interesting. I was, funny enough, I was going to ask you about, like, you know, obviously having to deal with having three young children as well and taking on the burden of grief for them as well and how we relate to children around grief because I, I was saying to Sophie on the way up before this um today that it was kind of not talked about in our house like you know once particularly after my mama died it was like became you know we talked about taboos and stuff but it was like an un, almost an unspoken thing and I wondered now with my own children we my wife lost her father at young age as well and we were very open about you know losing our parents and and what that meant and the the emotional baggage of that and the trauma of it. Have you been to always tried to be quite open and candid with your your children around it? I think so. They've all been quite different in the ways that they've dealt with um, with Mark's death and uh, how much they wanted to talk about it and engage with it. But I, it was very important to me that they knew the whole circumstances right from the beginning. I wanted them to know that he'd chosen to end his own life. Mm. Uh, and I didn't want that to be a taboo. I wanted them to be proud of him mm-hmm. for doing such a, a brave thing it, as I am. Um, and actually, Greg, the youngest, he'd, uh, he, he'd only just turned 11 when his father died. It was two days after his 11th birthday. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, well, I'm happy to know that. I'm pleased to know that he wanted to die. That's so much better than him wanting to be alive and not being able to. Mm. And I thought, well, that's a different mm. way of looking at his death, and a, and a very mature one, actually, for a, mm. for an eleven-year-old child. Oh, very mature, you know. And I suppose there become there comes an element as well of the choice of when and how as well, because um, you know I've lost people as well, and none of them have had that choice of you know how they die and when. And remember, when my mum passed away shortly after my. Um, shortly after my birthday and shortly after Mother's Day, but before my sister's birthday. And so I think there was always that kind of, you know, it was horrible anyway because she passed away and then we all had to celebrate my sister's birthday. Like, oh, happy birthday. It was probably like 14 days later or something. We had, we all had to sort of celebrate my sister's birthday without her. But then there was also that kind of feel, feel like, oh, I wish she was here for my birthday. She could have just held on a little bit longer. So it's it's actually nice that he had, you know, your youngest had that birthday with with Mark before before he passed away yeah and I think Mark was waiting as well for a moment when we would be out of the house Mm. uh, which wasn't very there weren't very many opportunities actually so he Mm. took the opportunity when it came yeah yeah I can imagine it is a heavy topic and I, I know that the topic of people deciding to take their own lives and particularly uh, euthanasia in in general in you know in legal terms as well can be quite a heavy and polarizing topic and people have varying 
sort of experiences and varying opinions of that as well. Um, I mean, I'm guessing your opinion of that is that it should be legal. I, th- I think assisted dying should mm. be available for people who who want it. And obviously mm. we need to have safeguards and we need to have controls and people do, they're quite right to have um, to have reservations and to have anxieties about how it can be done safely. But mm. interestingly, in the countries where assisted dying is legal, it hasn't been a big problem that people feel like they're being coerced into it or that uh, doctors are abusing their power or any of those Mm. things that people worry about. So I think it shouldn't be beyond our wit to come up with a solution. And I think in the meantime, when when it's not legal, there is so much suffering that's Mm. going on and people are being left unsupported in in a really difficult time. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with you as well. I don't know how you feel about it, Giles, but um, yeah, it's just yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, I'm on, I think it's when you yeah. yeah, I think when you've experienced that as well, and you've known someone that suffered. I mean, whether that be from a sort of unknown illness or a, a kind of terminal disease that people know a lot about. Either way, I think we've all had that thought of what what would I do if there was the option? And I don't think anyone would really take it lightly and decide to end their life just on a whim. It's, it's a huge topic. No, but, but I think having knowing that you have control mm. makes a huge difference. Yeah. Interestingly, it, I think only about two-thirds of the people who get clearance for assisted dying and in the Netherlands, somebody did a study, mm. and they, acquire, they can acquire the drugs and they have them at home mm. and... Only about a, only about half of them, or just over half of them, ever take them. Mm. The, but they know they're there. Yeah. Mm. And I think knowing that you have an option, knowing that you're going to have control, makes it more possible for you to bear what you're going through. I, mm. I, I think the closest analogy for me is giving birth, yeah. uh, which is you know maybe maybe a bit different. But I think well, I had my children in a situation where I knew that I could get pain relief. Yeah. As mm. much pain relief as I wanted, if I wanted it. Yeah. Mm. And knowing that I could, I then gave birth with minimal pain relief and that was and that was fine. And I had the kind of experience that I wanted. Mm. But I think I could yeah. only have that experience that I wanted because I knew that I had options and I had control and it was never going to be too much for me because I could always ask for mm. uh, yeah. yeah. You take heavier. Yeah, you take the fear element away from it. And actually thinking about it now, I think one of the saddest things about watching somebody that you love pass away is seeing them experience that fear and seeing them go through the uh, emotional turmoil. Uh, there was actually a documentary a while back. Louis Theroux did one on uh, on assisted dying. And it was it was a sad documentary. It was a hard watch and I watched it once and was like, I don't think I could watch that again now. But I will say the people that they were, the families and the people that had opted to have assisted dying in America, they all seemed relatively happy and calm and they knew what was going to happen. There was no panic and fear and just all of the horrible emotions that usually come with having a sort of terminal disease. And it was, yeah, it was quite refreshing I would say Mm. Um, but it's interesting that you kind of compare death to giving birth because I think they're so different in terms of societally how we talk about them and how we approach them right so when you're giving birth or you're expecting everyone's talking about it you know everyone sees you and they're like oh how exciting have you decided what your plan is and you come up with a plan and you have you know even if it doesn't quite go to plan you have your birth plan and you have a midwife and a 
some in some cultures a doula and all of these sort of very spoken about um societal sort of ways of giving birth and you know going through that process and yet with with death it's it's kind of the complete opposite isn't it yeah no I couldn't agree more um there are yeah we, we don't have all the the classes and the and the books and the and the help and the groups and and the conversations that are really easy to have mm. around birth and that's a big change from we were talking about how things were in in the past and I think of, I start the book by talking about this category of literature that we don't have anymore mm. called uh, Ars Moriendi, The Art of Dying. And this was, like, this was real bestseller stuff in the late Middle Ages and right through <laughs> into the early modern period. They, these went to kind of um, 25, 30 editions, all of these, these books on wow. how to oh, die Oh, there's a gap well. in the market, quick. Yeah. <laughs> you were an author, Charles. But... So uh, because of the, the period in which they're written, the, the preoccupation is kind of religion and how to die a theologically appropriate yeah. death mm. and so on. So, mm. yeah. But the kind of the, the bigger picture is that they describe death. They talk about what's going to happen to the body. They talk about the senses leaving the body one by one. They talk about the things, the things that you might feel, that what might go wrong, what are the kind of the temptations that will assail you, what's the, the despair that you might feel, the anxiety, the fear, all of those things that you might feel on your deathbed, that you might experience on your deathbed, um, and how you should address them. And it's interestingly, when, when they talk about the deathbed, people don't die alone as well. They're, they're in a room full of their friends and neighbours and family and priests and and then angels and saints and mm. things all hanging around <laughs> as well so it's a really crowded space it's very mm. different the way that that death is so kind of pushed to one side in mm. in society now and I think the other interesting thing there is today we see death as a failure something's gone wrong yeah if you die it's a failure of medicine mm. or it's your own failure you just haven't fought hard enough you just didn't have enough will to keep alive mm. or the loved ones failure for not you or know they didn't keep you enough. alive they mm. didn't make you go to the doctor soon enough they should have done this done that mm. uh, but in those ask moriendi literature nobody ever dies of anything they just die and mm. it's completely understood that this is just what happens mm. and it might be tomorrow or it might be in 30 years but at some point I'm going to die and, and it's going to, it's just going to happen. And I think we've lost that now because we do, we spend so much energy on trying to keep alive yeah. and trying to avoid anything that might cause you to die. Mm. But ultimately it's not going to work. There's n however much salad I eat and however <laughs> much jogging I do, I know how this story is going to end. Yeah, and we all do, and it's going to end the same way for all of us. So I think it, that's a really important cultural, social issue that we should be confronting: is how we can have those conversations in a less weighty way, the way that we might have them about giving birth and mm -hmm. so on. So just exploring the options and not waiting till everything is really desperately intense and we're on our deathbeds. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes wonder if people think about death as much as I do. <laughs> Because it's like a daily thing. I'm like, is this going to cause my death? Is that going to cause my death? <laughs> if I eat this now, is that going to, in 10 years' time, give me some disease and then I'm going to die? You know, it's always in the back of my mind. I mean, obviously, I'm a bit of an extreme 
case because I've, I experienced uh, illness from quite a young age and then death a little bit later on in life. But yeah, it's. I feel like it might be something, a burden easier to carry <laughs> if it was spoken about a little bit more in society. And there were books and there were groups for people going through stuff like that and, and the same sorts of things that you have set up for, mm. for birth and pregnancy. Yeah, I, I think like, well, like you, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about death. It's not taboo for me <laughs> because that's what I spend all my life on. But having published the book, I've been quite touched by how many people have written to me to share their stories or approached me to tell me about their own experiences and what so many of them have said is that they didn't have a space to have those discussions they didn't have a space to talk about what was going to happen or what had happened to their loved ones Mm. or what's going to happen to them yeah well people don't know what to say do they I mean we spoke about this earlier on in the car driving up like when somebody's loved one passes away you just don't know what even if you've experienced it yourself I mean I've experienced loss and when my best friend's brother died I was like I don't know what to say I just said I think I just said to her I honestly don't I don't know what to say we apologize that's the first thing we normally we apologize don't we that's the first thing that comes out of our mouth that's true yeah Um, I think people worry maybe a bit too much about saying the wrong thing yeah uh because yeah, honestly, you can say the wrong thing, but it's almost certainly better than saying nothing at all. And there's there's probably no right thing, but I think just acknowledging that something has happened and that you're there, that's yeah, that's really that's really good. But I think it must have been hard for you because you said you lost your mother when you were 19. Yeah, I did. So my mum actually got ill for the first time when I was 10, um, I, I believe. <laughs> Although my memory, again, my memory is not great. So she got ill when I was 10. Um, with breast cancer and was very unwell and was sort of fighting that off for quite a while had various surgeries and chemo and stuff eventually she was in remission and then it came back when I was eight, 18 um, she was actually uh, in fact I won't go into the details I don't want people listening to panic and be like oh, what if that happens to me but anyway came back when I was 18 over just over a year of illness uh, where as a family we were all looking after her and going through the motions you know hospital appointments and various things like that died in March um when I was not I just turned 19 and in my head for some reason I thought that she'd been ill for a month mm. so I mean it's been described and explained to me by various people as sort of like some kind of PTSD <laughs> basically I completely dissociated it was like nothing had happened basically I didn't talk to anyone you know back then we're talking well over 10 years ago now so therapy wasn't as talked about or acceptable in society it was kind of a bit embarrassing still just on the cusp of things changing a little bit I remember literally like walking out of the hospital and the nurse just gave us a pamphlet on grief and was like okay see ya and we just went home and carried on our lives and again similar to you Giles it was never really spoken about too much in in the home you know we spoke about it a little bit um you know and we still talk about my mum um from time to time but yeah, it was It was pro- possibly because we never spoke about it that I didn't actually find out my memory was false until maybe like eight years after she had died. <laughs> and suddenly it came to light. I was like, hold on, a year? I thought she had been in for a month. And I just blocked out all these memories. And like we'd gone on holiday as a family and stuff. It was absolutely crazy. But it does make me think it's so bizarre how different all of our experiences of death and suffering and grief 
Oh, because from the outside looking in, I probably looked like I wasn't grieving at all. So I was just kind of like straight back to work. Like, yeah, fine, happy, going out, seeing friends. <laughs> so I, th- I think crazy. it's particularly hard when you're young because mm. your, your contemporaries haven't experienced what you've experienced mm. right. or anything like it. Mm. And they don't know what to do. And I know this was a problem for, you know, my kids that they're friends at school. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> they had no idea or they could say, oh, well, yeah, my guinea mm. pig died. And I was yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they didn't really have anything it's hard to, to relate, yeah. To to relate to, to that. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I remember I still to this day remember the first person that I knew whose mum died when we were kids and I barely knew him. I'd never met his mum and yet I remember it being this really shocking like oh she's died. Oh my god. Like I could not believe my little head couldn't comprehend that happening. So it's like a tragedy on a scale that I just couldn't imagine because I never experienced anything like that. Well, I think similar to you, I think I felt that slight burden of knowledge, like the fact that I was the person whose mum had died and then it mm. you know, everyone would see you as the kid whose mum had died. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that well that's really yeah. interesting that you've both mentioned that and certainly I experienced that people have expectations yeah. of of what it's going to be and in a way it, you're a channel for their grief they they empathize with how they imagine you must be feeling mm. and that I remember thinking after Mark died I have people are imagining the experience now of being a young widow mm. yeah and I am kind of a lightning rod for their grief mm. and they've got expectations about how I should kind of perform this role of young widow but yeah. sometimes you know you it's it's a re- it's a really complicated business going through a bereavement, and sometimes you want to cry, but sometimes you don't, and sometimes you want to mm. laugh, and yeah, sometimes yeah. you want to ignore it, and sometimes you just want to sleep for a week, mm. and there are all sorts of different things. Yeah, going yeah I was going to say, do, do you ever feel conscious of someone else's like interpretation of that? Then, because I'm thinking, like, yeah, the idea, because you know, you see things on TV, like people say, oh, they're they've lost someone, but they're not acting like they've lost someone. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like they're, 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 well, yeah, do you know what yeah. I mean? There's that, that kind of expectation that you should behave in a certain well, way. Well, I think that's it, yeah. And I think, you know, we're all kind of, everybody's got the kind of the therapy speak thing. You know, you should have, everyone said you should have counselling. Yeah. Mm. And I thought, well, I think actually I'm coping all right. Yeah. Mm. Considering, I'm not sure what I would go and ask a counsellor for yeah. at the moment, because mm. this is just what happens. I don't think there's anything really pathological going on here. Um, but I think also there was people thought that if I wasn't expressing my grief, it was because I was deliberately, yeah, channeled, yeah. you know, keeping it down, and and that I should be encouraged to express how I was really feeling, mm. and because they knew how I must be really feeling, and if I wasn't expressing it in the way that they identified with, then are you that's sure me. you're okay? Yeah, that's like, I know <laughs> yeah, not yeah. really. I yeah. know that this is how yeah. you must be feeling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you get sort of like films and tv shows and stuff like that i don't know if you've seen that film p.s i love you it's all like a very romanticized and extreme and dramatic version of losing a loved one and and essentially in the film her husband dies and then he has turns out before he'd passed away he'd written her a letter every i don't know a few weeks or something i'm guessing i'm the only person that has seen it in this room because you're both looking at me (laughs) with blank faces (laughs) but it's you know it's got gerald butler in it it's super romantic and she's like doesn't eat for a month because she's just so heartbroken and stuff. And yeah, I think people see films like this or, you know, like your typical breakup films or whatever, and they expect that that's how you're feeling and that's what it should look like. But actually in that moment after Mark had passed away, you possibly 
you know, didn't need therapy or it wasn't the right time no, for you. And I think it was also, I think because of the way that Mark died and because of his, his illness, I, I remember saying at the time, it's not his death that's the tragedy, it's his illness that's the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have that feeling of, oh, I just wish I could have him back for a bit mm. longer because, you know, I, yeah. he, was, he was having a horrible life yeah, and we yeah. were all having a horrible life. Yeah, you wouldn't wish it, that. I wouldn't want to extend that long tail of pain and misery yeah. that his life went into so the death was not mm. a big problem I think it's very different for people who lose someone suddenly or unexpectedly or after a very short illness mm. that's well, quite a different experience I think that comes with its own stuff to unpack though doesn't it because yeah. um, then I mean you've got probably various different elements of guilt and you mentioned earlier about the fact that you weren't with Mark mm. whereas other people might feel guilty that they didn't get to say goodbye or they didn't um you know ever tell the person that they love them and stuff like that there's elements of grief and heartbreak to unpack in in death in you know many different circumstances I guess but yeah yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say I do feel gu- I don't think I do feel guilty I feel some regrets mm. um but yeah. I don't feel I don't feel guilty mm. yeah that's good that's good yeah and we touched on it a little bit earlier I was thinking the idea around a good death and you mentioned earlier that there was you know, back in, you know, hundreds of years ago, you would have like a, a gathering of loved ones and neighbours and, you know, and obviously mm-hmm. the the more religious aspects of, you know, thinking there are angels surrounding your body. But is is there such a thing as a good death? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think there are good deaths for people. Um, and we don't always get the choice yeah. about how we die and we don't all get to have a good death. But I think we should do more to make sure that we the people who can do have a good death and I think it's one um Sophie said one without fear mm. one where you're not in pain where you're not anxious where you've got control um where you can be with people it's nice if you can die when when you're still aware of what's going on and I think for the most people they don't actually do they they mm. die they're in a a drugged out haze or with advanced dementia or whatever so mm. that's not always mm. possible but a kind of a clear a, a clear-headed falling asleep at a moment when you're expecting it when you've got when you've said what you need to say and you feel that there aren't there's not a lot of left stuff left undone and you've mm. taken control of what you can take control of that would be a good death that's what I want yeah 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 because you get some people that are like oh I just want to drop dead in the street from a heart attack and not feel any pain not know it's coming or fall asleep and just never wake up and stuff like that but I suppose then you've got well I guess once you're gone you know it doesn't probably doesn't matter too much to you the people left behind but then you've got the people that are left to pick up the pieces and and grieve the loss and I suppose if those people do get that goodbye then that's good for both parties, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I was reading um, an article yesterday and it was about, um, my wife put me onto it, I don't know how it came up, but the something called the Swedish Death Clean. Oh, yeah, yes. I mentioned <laughs> that in the book. Actually. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, I was reading a bit more about it and I, it was fascinating because it's, yeah, the idea that we would, um, you know, because I've, I've, I remember when my grandmother passed away, we had to clear out her flat and it was, such a rigmarole to get through all this stuff and she was a bit of a hoarder so there was just crap everywhere um but i like the idea of that the fact that we would like you know we're 
going to cleanse our our um, palates or our life palates so that um, the next person, the, the people don't have to pick up too many pieces afterwards. Yeah, no, I think it's a good idea, you know, so you don't, you're not encumbering all your, your family and your, 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 uh, your relatives with going through all of your stuff. And I think another thing that was pointed out was you might want to take care of what old letters you're keeping and what yeah. you've written in diaries. <laughs> yeah. Like there may Photos. Be things that you don't want your children to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from so your true. earlier life. I remember helping a friend uh, out with his when his uh, uh, father passed away and we went up to his loft and there was four VHS recorders in there. Oh. <laughs> he just kept all these VHS recorders, oh. you know, and uh, you just thought it was hilarious. Like, oh, and he's like passing them down to me. I was like, I've got another one, you know. <laughs> and it's these sort of things that, you know, which are, I think in that moment actually was nice for him because it was so funny that it, this, his father kept all these things and it was just like kind of lightened the moment a bit of this, which w otherwise was quite a horrible thing, like sorting out, mm. sorting out a house that's been left. Um, yeah. I want to ask you about how your how you are, your relationship with death is now. Obviously, having been through this experience with with Mark and your work, and do you you know do you is it changed the way you look at death overall, or the way you approach it with your work? Has it sort of informed you in a certain way? It, I, I mean, I was already interested in quite a lot of the set those topics yeah. anyway. I was already interested in in emotions and death. I think it has. It's been interesting because I spent a lot of time imagining. Because I spent a lot of time thinking about death and I spent a lot of time imagining what it would be like to lose a spouse and how I would feel. And mm. then to go through the experience and find that actually it wasn't quite like that. Mm. That was that was interesting to me. Right after Mark died, I thought, I, I just don't think I can face this anymore. I don't want to work on death for a while. And I she planned out a whole new um research project on the history of false teeth little bit different yeah also there's so many puns you can make yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is like a work palette cleanser isn't it absolutely yeah yeah so i'd written this whole um this whole new research direction it was called don't you wish your girlfriend was oh, <laughs> A couple of years. now I seem to be back doing yeah. death stuff again. I'm, I'm just curious when you like when you decided to go on that route and you came up with that with your colleagues kind of like she's not she's clearly not coping okay. <laughs> <laughs> if they were, they didn't. Say, they were <laughs> she's kind of she's having a breakdown right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm I'm glad for yeah. your yeah for your career that you went back on to talking about this because the book is fantastic and yeah it's definitely worth a read. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something about, uh, in fact, you know what? The moment's passed. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> we'll cut that out. <laughs> but yeah, so it has, it has like, like slightly changed the way you approach the, the, the subject, do you think? It's made me, um, yeah, I think before, I've, I've been writing about death for a long time. But I'd always written very academically, mm. and this is the first time I tried to write for a, a general audience. And I think finding um, that people are interested, that people have so much that they want to talk about and they want to hear about, and they're interested in, and that people are interested in the way that archaeologists work as well and the way that we think, mm. that's been really interesting to me. And it makes me think that actually there is work for me, there's more work for me to do there writing about death and and a good death and trying to reflect a little bit on on from what we know from other cultures and other times and places does that help us to understand 
the breadth of possibility and to make to see what decisions we're making to make them yeah. it kind of it makes them um Oh, how am I going to say this? <laughs> uh, we see that our way, we often don't see what we do. We don't see what we take for granted mm. until you see other cultures or other times who do things differently. Mm. And so when that happens, that causes you to reflect on your own practice. And I think that's something that's really great about archaeology and history for me and anthropology, I think, is is kind of the same, that you can see another another way of doing things. And when you've got that broader range of practices it illuminates the how specific and sometimes how odd the things that we do actually yeah. are. Mm. Actually, on that, are there are there cultures and or countries in the world where they do the death thing better? Like uh, they are. I mean, obviously, we have like the Mexican Day of the Dead and things like that, where it's, it's a very big celebration. Are there other cultures where they? You know, because I feel like we're quite repressed in the in Britain. Yeah, for I think example. we make a big separation yeah. between the living and the dead. We tend to we want the body gone. Yeah, we don't often go and visit it after after it's been buried, or or we do something even more radical, which is cremate it yeah. and then scatter it to the winds. Mm. So you're really really obliterating the physical traces of the dead, and that contrasts with, for example, in um, certain prehistoric uh, sites where the dead are buried underneath the floor of the house and they're mm. kept with the with the living they're really a part of wow. one imagines they were really a part of life or the or there are communal tombs where where the whole of the of a group would bury their dead in the same place and perhaps have secondary rituals of death where the bodies get taken out and in mm. and muddled up and mm. churned about and so on so their individual identity gets lost in a kind of communal identity over time and that's an interesting process that we don't we don't have so i would i wouldn't say that people necessarily do it better but i think that they they sometimes do it differently mm. um and there's a whole range of different ways some people have some cultures have been really obsessed by death and, and thought about death a lot and other others like us now try not to think about it very much at all and try to clear the dead away as much as mm. possible and move on yeah bury our head in the sand but there's a whole range of options in between as well yeah yeah i like the idea of doing something with nature like you you get some people that want to be like turned into a tree and stuff like that as well Mm. which i think Mm. is quite interesting um but yeah i guess we do i was just thinking earlier in terms of the fact that we as a society we do kind of bury our heads in the sand a little bit and when we were talking about the swedish death clean and how people you know prepare for death by clearing out all of their old clutter I was thinking I was trying to imagine what that would look like in in you know our families if I sort of went to my dad and was like right time to get rid of all your your old crap now (laughs) you're gonna die soon you know (laughs) I feel like in some ways maybe we do tend to bury our head in the sand because otherwise it feels a little bit like we're just waiting for people to die you know past a certain age you're like right well you know there's no point in you being here anymore off you off you go (laughs) pop your clogs or something I think that's why it's important to find a way of having those conversations Mm. early and in a non-weighty way in a Mm. in a casual easy way Mm. so perhaps yeah doing some death cleaning now while i'm I'm not to my knowledge yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. i'm I'm not immediately facing death as far as i know so this might be a good time to to do those sorts of things and to have those 
those early conversations. Yeah. I do death cleans every spring. <laughs> You're a better person than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time I'm yeah, in the house, I do a I death clean. I might need to do one soon, but yeah. Yeah, yeah if Michelle asks you what you're doing, just death yeah, yeah. cleaning, just don't death worry. Cleaning, yeah, yeah. Just preparing so for my own demise. Well, photos and <laughs> slides and things like that. Yeah. Oh, man, yeah. But the last thing I wanted to ask you about is um, you being a, a humanist celebrant. Am I right? That's that right, right? Yeah. 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 How, how, how did that come about? Well, and, it was actually you know. when my father died and we got... He, my father was actually born into an, an Orthodox Jewish family, but through his life he became less and less religious. And, and by the end of his life, he was really quite anti-religious. Mm. So it was clear that he didn't want a religious funeral. And we got a, a humanist celebrant to um, to, to do his, his funeral. Uh, and she was great. She was really terrific. And I, I loved the... The whole idea that you've got a, um, a memorial that's focused on the person who died, mm. that it's really about being a tribute to them. You can personalise this. And I thought, this is writing and talking. Mm. And that's what I do for my living yeah. anyway. I love writing and talking. And I thought, perhaps... I can do this. And I think uh, the other attribute I have is that I'm really, really nosy. And so <laughs> when you're a celebrant, you get to go into somebody's family. Yeah. Um, and and it's, just a, it's a big honour because you get to be with them at a time of, of great difficulty and to, to do something that's a bit helpful to, to create a narrative, to make mm. the story mm. and to put together something, a way of making sense of, of, a, of a whole life. Um, and that's a massive privilege and it's a wonderful mm. thing to do. But um, yeah, it, it's I just I'm interested in people, and you get to hear everyone's story, and everyone's got a story, and it's mm. they're so interesting and they're so different. Yeah, so kind I always really uh, enjoyed doing that. It's like just being like an archaeologist. Have you thought about being an archaeologist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose actually as well, because archaeology, from what I understand, it's kind of you 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 might find one specific object or thing or circumstance from a specific person and many many years ago and then you have to kind of branch out to the wider you know what does that tell us about society and the country and you go outwards whereas when you're celebrant you're kind of going inwards into someone's life and it's very personal it's kind of in some ways it's like the same different side of the same coin I'd say. that's a really nice way. i hadn't thought of that but it's a really <laughs> lovely way of putting it yeah no you definitely do yes we start as as archaeologists taking these little it, a hair, pair of hair clippers or oh, whatever yeah, it is, yeah, and exactly, spiraling yeah. out from that to mm. tell a story, to show a bigger picture of what's going on. Mm. But yeah, when we're when we're taking a um, writing somebody's life for their memorial service, mm. you're taking a, a moment in history and distilling it down to mm. an individual's experience. I love that. That's yeah. really beautiful. Well, Sarah, it's been so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank and you, thank you for yeah, and um, yeah, the archaeology of loss you can get in all yep. all good bookshops, mm, and I rec- highly recommend it to anybody. Absolutely, thanks very much. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you for listening to Unquestionable. We'd love to hear from you on social media by searching for Unquestionable Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.